This is the Taiwanology podcast from Commonwealth Magazine, where we discuss Taiwan matters and why they matter to you. Coming to you from Taipei, the capital of the freest nation in Asia. Welcome to another episode of the Taiwanology podcast. I'm your host Guang Yingliu, managing editor of Commonwealth Magazine. I'm very excited today because we're going to make an episode that I have always wanted to make for a long time, ever since we started this podcast. So, okay, first of all, answer quickly: What's your impression of Taiwan? China believes Taiwan is its territory. Taiwan has TSMC and very advanced semiconductors. Taiwan is a democracy and the first Asian country to legalize same-sex marriage. Well, if you are living outside of Taiwan and have been following international news in the past two years, chances are that you also believe that war is going to break out any day now, and everybody is preparing for it, and everybody is thinking that will happen in the next few years. You probably have even heard people say, "We must visit Taiwan before it turns into a war zone like Ukraine," and that if you visit Taiwan, it's very likely you will see a military exercise or two. Is there any truth in these impressions? And if not, why not? So today we have the best guest I can think of in Taiwan. So in today's episode, we are going to challenge a common perspective that often dominates discussions surrounding Taiwan. Why is Taiwan often seen through a narrow lens of war and conflict? What impact has this focus had on Taiwan's economy and interactions with the outside world? And most importantly, what are some of the alternative and more nuanced ways for us to talk about Taiwan other than war and geopolitical risk? I'm very happy to have in our studio today, Dr. George In In Li Chao. Hi, George. Hello. Okay. Very nice to have you here. So, okay, I'm going to really catch my breath if I'm going to introduce George. He taught foreign policy at Swarthmore and Dartmouth, and he's also now a distinguished research fellow at National Taiwan University Center for China Studies. He is also a research associate at Fairbank Center at Harvard. As former Harvard classmates, George had published with. Rush Doshi, who is now the deputy senior director for China and Taiwan at Biden's National Security Council, and George has lived in many places, among which mainland China, the UK, and the US, which has provided him with a unique perspective on international politics. So, welcome to our studio, George. Hello, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. So I've lived in a lot of different places, but I always think of Taiwan as my motherland. And my childhood memory of rice paddies in Taiwan—that's you know, my image of hometown. So、Good. my family's originally from Yilan. Okay, so Yilan is a very pastoral, beautiful place in northeastern corner of Taiwan. Right, and of course, very rural. There is a phrase in Yilan which is "hao san hao shui hao wu liao." Okay, beautiful mountains, you know, beautiful sea, you know. But、uh, very know, boring. Very boring. <laughs> I like Elon a lot. So, okay, since we're talking about childhood, tell us about you. So, how come you you were born in Taiwan? You grew up in Taiwan, and what brought you to China, U.S., and U.K.? So, I was in China for a while because my parents were in China, you know, as Taiwan Taiwanese business people, 
And after my finishing up high school, you know, in Shanghai, I moved to America and you know, stayed for school, you know, except for one year in the UK. Okay. So why did you choose to study what you study, foreign policy and political economy? To be honest, it was actually a compromise. So I wanted to study philosophy and history when I was in college, but my parents told me that if I dare to do that, they'll make sure that I starve to death. <laughs> they don't want nice. me. Yes, and I know they tend to make credible threats. You know, Asian tiger parents. So I was like, okay, all right. So the compromise is political science and economics, and I, you know, I really loved the two subjects. You know, since then and stuck to it. Good. And what's your study subject? Without using too much jargon, please. Of course. So now I mostly work on security studies or the study of war, peace, and diplomacy in international relations. And sometimes I take a political economy angle to studying these issues too. So, for instance, how do economic considerations affect people's view you know, of foreign security policy? Right. So I think these are all the hot topics. George also has a column. That he's publishing with Commonwealth Magazine with Tianxia Zhaizhi. So if you are interested in his ratings, please refer to Commonwealth Magazine. So since you study war and peace, you must be very busy recently as a scholar coming from Taiwan with all the attention coming from all sorts of think tanks and businesses. So. And you are living in the U.S. What kind of questions are you getting recently from people? I think mostly, is there going to be a war? Right, is that's China the first going question. To invade? Mm-hmm. Yes,、uh, and what are we doing doing right now to prepare for a possible Chinese invasion? So, the, you know, really the usual suspects. Yeah, how would you answer those questions? I would tend to tell my foreign friends and foreign experts experts visiting Taiwan that you know the situation is tense. But ultimately, if we do the right thing, I think we can avoid a conflict, you know, with China. So it's important to not just focus on, you know, war, war, but also focus on the possibility of peace. But of course, you know, we have to think of war and peace as almost two sides of the same coin. If we want to explain, you know, how wars, how and when wars occur, we also have to explain how do peace, how would peace endure, and how would we be able to sustain peace at the same time.、Hmm. I I like your nuanced view a lot, and I think it's very important to focus on the things we can do to preserve peace. And it's a point I wish to come back to later on in in our discussion. But just to comment on a lot of recent coverage by international media regarding Taiwan. So you know, as a reporter in Taiwan, almost every month, if not every week. There will be international journalists or think tank people who come to Taiwan, and the first question they ask me is the same question that you get a lot: that when is it going to be war, and what would you do if the war is going to to happen? That's question number one. Another question would be about TSMC and semiconductors. So, why do you think that Taiwan? We didn't get a lot of international media attention. I would say before the pandemic, and now all the attention are on these two subjects. And why do you think that's the case? I think there are a few things going on here. So the first thing is that I think people are very, very anxious about the rise of China abroad. 
When you say people, you mean like for I guess both、uh, policymakers abroad, but also the public, you know, but particularly policymakers.、Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why are they so concerned? I, I think one reason behind this heightened concern over Taiwan is really related to the Russo-Ukraine conflict. So Russia invaded Ukraine. To frankly, a lot of people's surprise, you know, no one thought that Russia would do something that is that irrational. But nonetheless, Putin ordered the invasion. And that really made people wonder. Okay, so Putin is an autocratic leader. So right now, she has Xi Jinping has also concentrated power. Does that mean that Xi Jinping might also do something that's similarly irrational? And if he's going to do that, who's going to be the target? Taiwan.、Mm-hmm. Right. So there's there's concern, and you can say that's sparked mainly by the war on Ukraine. I think the Russia-Ukraine war is definitely one of the factors. That encouraged people to start looking at Taiwan more closely, but I think even before that, there is this general anxiety, you know, over China's rise. How should the U.S. or how should Europe deal with China? China is getting more and more powerful, right? But we don't know a lot about China. China has different political system, different culture. So China's rise is very unique in modern history, in the sense that this is the first time that you get a new great power rising, but. Its culture and its history and its language are basically totally distinct from the old great dominant hegemon,、mm. and in this case, the right. U.S. Right. Yeah. So if you talk about the First World War, the the Second World War, you have mainly Western countries who are the belligerents that they have maybe some kind of shared history. Right. But even even Russia, they have shared history. But China, like you said, is a A very strange country for them, and they don't know the language, the the culture. So there is more anxiety, right? And of course, one could say that、like、Japan, you know, was has also been very powerful. But the fact is that Japan, you know, never rose to the position that China has gotten to in recent years. Yeah. So I think there are really a lot of deep rooted anxieties concerning China because China is so unique and so complicated. And I, I guess that's where a lot of people would come in and say the there's this. Trap, right? Thucydides trap. Oh yes, yes. Thucydides. <laughs> yeah, very difficult to pronounce.、Right. Greek name. <laughs> I, I can never pronounce that word. But this is real anxiety, I think, for for a lot of people because there is. I was listening to a podcast,、uh, an economist podcast, and they were saying that the the policymakers and intellectuals in China they all believe that. The U.S. and the Western world are really intent on keeping China from rising. Therefore, China needs to resist. China needs to fight. What's your assessment of this kind of sentiment? So, I I think another big issue here, and this of course exacerbates the anxiety concerning the rise of China right now you know, around the world, is that oftentimes, in my opinion, policymakers and the public. In China, they don't necessarily know what's going on in the West either. They also don't have a good grasp of American sentiments, of European sentiments, and of course, this is again going back to our earlier discussion. This could be a function of you know just how different China is compared to the West. In this sense, we are seeing actually a clash of civilizations, right? You know, kind of、mm. East versus Huntington. Yeah, Huntington. Yes, you know, East versus East versus West. In fact, when I was at Harvard,、so、I was a PhD student at Harvard. My fellowship is the Huntington Fellowship. Okay. So, so, so <laughs> the, 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 in any case, random, random detail. But I'm very much a 
fan of Huntington, and in fact, Huntington's Clash of Civilizations is the first book I read on international relations when I was in high school. Going back to the China talk, the, the the China issue, because of the cultural differences and because of the relative unfamiliarity, you know, with the Western democratic how the Western democratic systems you know work, I think oftentimes the Chinese could also make a lot of mistakes in terms of assessing the West. So in this case, I would not say that most people in the U.S. want to prevent China's rise. I think it's much fairer to say that they are concerned with China's rise. But I think most people are also wise enough, you know, at least you know、uh, the policymakers or the think tank analysts you know I talk to to know that it's impossible to prevent China's rise. China、mm-hmm. is a huge country, you know, large population, a lot of resources, did very well, you know, in the past you know few decades in terms of economic development. The important thing is to make sure that China would incorporate itself into the current international order as a responsible stakeholder. You know, the issue is not to prevent China's rise. That's both unrealistic and, frankly, not the smartest move. You know, of course, that would trigger negative Chinese reactions. Right. So, in other words, we have to manage China's rise. We have to see China's rise with a with a clear eye, but not panic. Right, we have to be nuanced. I think that's very important. Right, and just to add one quick point, I think it's also very important for China to see the world through a relatively unbiased and objective lens. Otherwise, it would just fuel this "China is a big bad wolf"、mm-hmm. story around the world, which is not the most productive. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Last time, a few weeks ago, when I interviewed Joseph Kahn, the chief editor of New York Times. He was also concerned that because the New York Times correspondents in China, they they're not actually in China because they they cannot get the visas to get back in China. Even he is concerned that the information he gets about China could be biased because everyone is based outside of China. Maybe some of them are here in Taiwan, some of them are in Korea, and it's really hard for us to gauge what's happening. On the ground in China, so I, I think China is better off if more international correspondents could operate and work in China. I think right, and, and on this note, I do want to add one thing, which is that I'm not saying that China hasn't done a lot of very awful things. For instance, in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, but it's important to assess China objectively. I think probably about 15 years ago, I would say a lot of analysts in the West. Probably had an overly optimistic view when it comes to China, thinking、mm-hmm. that economic development and trade would eventually make the Chinese regime less repressive and also less aggressive. But that turns out to be, you know, basically、That's、wrong. Wishful thinking, yeah, less、right? wishful, wishful thinking. But、mm-hmm. at the but at the same time, it doesn't mean that we now have to adopt this incredibly black and white view that China is the villain. That's also not the. In my opinion, not necessarily the best way to think about China. I'm glad you brought up the your interview with you know with the editor of the New York Times.、Mm-hmm. I think that's a real issue right now that people from the West. It's not as easy for them to go to China anymore. Right. And at the same time, it's also not as easy for people from China to go to the West anymore. And this could generate a lot of information asymmetry and potentially misperception. And also in this regard, I think Taiwan. Could actually play quite an important role, as one could say, Taiwan is both the frontier of Sino-U.S. competition. We can be a bridge. Yes, but we could also be a bridge. We could also be a meeting point, and I think Taiwan should really exploit 
this to try to shape U.S.-China relations. Of course, it's going to be difficult, but I think there's a possibility.、Hmm. But I like the sound of it. I, I like the bridge much more than frontier or pawn or a chess piece. Right. <laughs> right. Indeed. Yeah, that's a metaphor a lot of people have used. Okay, so we're going to take a break. Come back later. Welcome back to the Taiwanology podcast. Our guest today is George In in Lichao. He's a distinguished research fellow at NTU Center for China Studies. So previously, we were just talking about how there is like a, a pendulum swing in the Western countries' attitude towards China. Before they were overly optimistic, thinking that through business collaboration. China will change to become a democratic country. Will be more open. Will embrace rule-based, you know, order and everything. But now it's like we're doing an one eighty. Like、uh, people are thinking, China is the big bad wolf. But I think the reality is something in between, right? Yes, and I mean, just think about it. I think it's very difficult if we want to characterize Taiwan. Is Taiwan anti-China or not? Right,、mm-hmm. it's not that easy, straightforward、no. to answer that question. We don't speak in one voice. Yes, yes, and it's the same for both, you know, China and the U.S. And in a similar vein, I also find sometimes this narrative that oh, the U.S. is just you know taking advantage of Taiwan, and Taiwan is a pawn in U.S. geopolitics.、Mm-hmm. That's also simplifying what's going on. So I think when we analyze and when we think about foreign policy and international relations, it's oftentimes very tempting for us to seek simple answers. But the reality is, international politics is very complicated. Just think about how many countries are involved. You know, right? Always, you know, its own domestic divisions, interests, different level of capabilities, so on and so forth. So, I would say, anyone who tries to give you a simple answer when it comes to international politics, that person is probably trying to deceive you.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I believe you. I always believe the most simple answers are. Never the right answers. That's my personal belief. So it brings me to an, another question that I would like to discuss with you. So we were just talking about the international coverage of Taiwan. So usually, when you talk about when you search images for Taiwan, you will probably see soldiers or tanks. It, it's like the entire island is mobilized in preparing for war. So I really get a lot of questions by think tank experts from. Especially Europe. So last time it was some Polish people who asked me, "Oh, we it's it's our first time in in Taiwan. Why are people not nervous about going to war in China? How would you answer that question?" I think maybe we could just tell the Poles that the Taiwanese we are calm, rational people. You know, we are we're used to China, so you know <laughs> that's why we are not concerned. Right, right, yeah, we're so very used to the threats. Right, right. But that being said, I think. I think the Taiwanese public's mentality concerning China and war is quite curious, in the sense that I think, on the one hand, it's not that people are not worried, and I think this is particularly the case when it comes to the business community, according to my experience. But at the same time, while people are worried, they also think that okay, maybe we are very concerned, but what could we actually do, right? If we couldn't actually do anything, why don't we just? You know, enjoy our lives, right?、Mm-hmm. You know, there's bubble tea, there's mango shaved ice, there's you know soup dumplings in Taiwan. You know, enjoy our lives. Yeah, you know, we can enjoy 
when we can, right? So I think you know on that score, I think one thing that's really very important is for the Taiwanese political elites to really take up more responsibility in terms of leadership to really explain to the people what's going on, what do we need to do, what can we do. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's missing in Taiwan. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you know, reminds me of the the story we were always told at Commonwealth Magazine. Our founder Diane Ying, when she started Commonwealth Magazine forty two years ago, it was at a time when America broke ties with Taiwan, and all a lot of people in Taiwan were losing hope. They were fleeing the country, and they really thought, "Oh, well, Taiwan is going to go under because we have lost our most important diplomatic ally." So that's why our founder started the magazine about economy and industry because she believed only by Building up Taiwan's strength and making Taiwan matter in the world, can we really be a important part of the world and that, that people will care about us and will want to work with us? So, I really I sometimes think that some hawkish people in Taiwan would always talk about war and conflict and bad mouthing China, and, and sometimes I think it's sort of shooting ourselves in the foot because. If we talk about conflicts, but on the other hand, we say that Taiwan has a lot of chips and semiconductor capabilities, and we need more investments. There is kind of a, a mismatch. How can we say? How can we convince people to invest in Taiwan if we talk about war all the time?、Mm. So on that note, I do also want to say that on one hand, I agree that being you know overly hawkish when it comes to China is not productive. On the other hand, it's also very important. To not have an idealistic, you know, view concerning China, as in too optimistic. So the Chinese regime right now, it you know, it's a dictatorship, and it's very difficult as a result to predict what the Chinese regime will do or will not do, because it all depends on one person now, Xi Jinping. So, so it's really very important also for us to be on guard, but of course, also not to demonize China. I think it's this balance that's very difficult, you know, to strike, and. Just on this note, you know, another issue of balance is okay. On the one hand, we want the world to know that Taiwan is important and that we need everyone's help to maintain the peace and prosperity of the region, right? And in that regard, it's not a bad idea to let other countries know that Taiwan is in a precarious geopolitical situation and there could be a conflict. But as you know, Miss Liu very rightfully pointed out earlier. It could also affect Taiwan's economic prospects, right? You know, who would want to invest in Taiwan if they think that oh, in five years there's going to be a war between Taiwan and China? What's the point of pouring in you know billions of dollars you know, if that's the case? So I think right now this might be a time for us to contemplate the possibility of maybe tweaking our approach in Taiwan, you know, slightly. But now, I think most people would agree that Taiwan is very important, and you know it would be disastrous for China to invade Taiwan. So, if we have achieved that already, maybe the next step is to try to reassure everyone that war is not inevitable. You know, and foreign businesses, you know, should continue to come to Taiwan. And in fact, to conclude this topic briefly, and that's actually very important in the medium to the long run for Taiwan. Because if Taiwan doesn't have a good economy, we wouldn't have the money to pay for defense. Defense is very, very expensive. Right. Yeah, that's true. So that's a really very important point. And you know, speaking of economy, 
another question that I get a lot from international think tank people, especially those who are not familiar with with Taiwan. You know, they they were always astonished when they found out there's so much economic activities between Taiwan and mainland China and Hong Kong. So I think according to the statistics, Taiwan's economic reliance on China and Hong Kong is about 40% of our exports, while the U.S. only accounts for 15. You know, many people really have trouble wrapping their heads around it because they're saying, okay, so China is a threat, but Taiwan is still doing business with China. How do we understand this situation? I think, you know, one way to think about this is that in terms of politics and in terms of identity politics, of course, not the U.S., not U.S. identity politics, but identity politics, you know, in terms of identification with Taiwan or identification with China, there are clearly a lot of conflict and difference of opinions. But when it comes to economics, it's much less straightforward. So Taiwan enjoys a great chunk of its trade surplus, you know, from trading, you know, with China. So that's just a reality that we have to accept. And the interesting thing here, though, is that from China's perspective, of course, the Chinese, you know, given its agenda, would be cautious, you know, when it comes to making Taiwan too rich, you know, put, to put it at least. Because as I had mentioned earlier, the wealthier Taiwan is, the more resource Taiwan would have to pour into defense. But that being said, I think the statistics that Ms. Liu just introduced to us really showcase how, in a sense, how dependent still the Chinese economy is on Taiwan. So that being said, the point here is that politically, maybe Taiwan and China have a lot of difference of a lot of differences. There is tension. It, yeah, mm-hmm. tension. You know, to say the very least. But economically, there are still a lot of common interests, and this might be the key. You know, for Taiwan and China to reach some kind of at least implicit understanding when it comes to maintaining the stability, you know, of the region. Because a war would be very, very destructive for both economically. Right. So I was in, in Berlin last year, and I think last year was really the, the first time when Europe or Germany realized how dependent they are on China for their, you know, income revenues and, and business survival. And they were talking about decoupling. But I think they have really walked back that position. So now they talk about primarily de-risking from China. So I think this really signals how important China is for a lot of economies. So especially for Taiwan, I think our economies are very intertwined. So if you are talking about decoupling, maybe it'll be too drastic and it'll be very difficult to manage. And I think for a lot of people it will be unthinkable also. Right. Right. And let me add a bit to that. I think having economic ties with China, right, is not only beneficial potentially for the West and for Taiwan, but it also generates extra leverage. So if China's economy is still somewhat dependent on Taiwan and the West, this would generate incentive you know, for Beijing to make sure that the situation, you know, concerning Taiwan doesn't go out of control. That's a very important point, which brings me to a next question. Well, I think some people talk about some people talk about war all the time, and some people in Taiwan talk about peace. But there must be a third way 
that's more nuanced. And I would like to bring your attention to that. And how can we contribute to more sort of dialogue or other ways to approach the geopolitical risk of China? Right. So on, on this note, so earlier in this podcast, Ms. Liu and I talked about how Taiwan could potentially serve as a bridge you know, between China and the U.S. So I want to come back to this point. When we talk about bridge, right, in the geopolitical sense, it basically means that communication, negotiation, which is essentially diplomacy, right? So I think oftentimes in our discussion of the Taiwan you know, situation, you know, we maybe overly focus on either war or peace and miss the diplomacy part. And diplomacy is important for two reasons. So first, if there's sufficient communication and negotiation with China, that could be a way to reach some kind of understanding that will be mutually beneficial to a conflict. So that's at the, I'm not saying that such negotiation you know, would be you know, possible and negotiation wouldn't fail, but at the very least, that's a scenario that we need to entertain and to work towards. Second reason why diplomacy is important. So I think peace is really important, but not peace at any cost, right? So if that's the case, during World War II, we could have just surrendered to the Japanese and to Nazi Germany, right? But we didn't. Like the West didn't, you know, and certainly, you know, the Republic of China didn't. And now we condemn, you know, Nazism, right? So the the point there is that, sure, you know, we want peace, but we don't want a peace on the Nazi influence or Japanese imperial influence. And in that regard, diplomacy is important, but it also could help us structure what peace looks like without going to war. And let me just emphasize one point, though, as we talk about diplomacy. So China is very focused on this concept of night to consensus and made it very clear that it would not open up at least official communication channels with Taiwan unless Taiwan accepts night to consensus. That being said, as uh, we have talked about earlier in the podcast, there are still a lot of common interests between Taiwan and China, particularly when it comes to business and trade and financial you know, interests. So in that regard, I think what Taiwan and possibly the West need to reflect on is, okay, given that there's common interests, right, to what extent or whether it's even possible to maybe come up with a new political foundation for cross-strait you know, exchange. I think that, by the way, would be very difficult, but not absolutely impossible. And this should be, at the very least, should be on the agenda of think tanks and potentially political debate in Taiwan. Yeah, I do agree with you. This is a very important foundation because there are a lot of shared interests between China and Taiwan, and frankly, with the Western economies, particularly at a time when a lot of economies are in pretty bad shape, including China's. So we really need to try to foster more collaboration because China is so crucial to the world economy and also the issue of climate change also cannot be solved without China on board. And I would like to talk about something we spoke about briefly before its intellectual deficit because we talk about how badly we understand e each other because right now, the international correspondents cannot really operate in China. I would say maybe vice versa. So a lot of the information conveyed on both sides are kind of biased. Sometimes it'll be overly negative. And I feel like in Taiwan, we are seeing the same problem 
because people now they are not interested in reading anything about China. So when we write about Chinese economy or society, the page view is not always very good. And I'm just thinking, what can we do to address the intellectual deficit on China in the U.S. and in Taiwan? So I think one thing about addressing the intellectual deficit concerning China and the U.S. that the, the Americans can do is to really facilitate and encourage more exchanges between the Chinese and the Americans at all levels, think tank, scholars and students, so on and so forth, and really do it in a genuine serious way. And unbiased? Yes, and unbiased. But of course, like to be honest, I think in this regard, the burden might be on China, you know, given that China recently passed new anti-espionage law and I think also new national security law. I have to go back and check. But the basic point here is that it's not that safe necessarily for Americans to visit China these days, right? It's true. So in that sense, you know, the Chinese need to think about, okay, so just how could the Americans really facilitate general exchange between U.S. and Chinese you know, personnel. So that's the first thing. And in terms of Taiwan, I think first, one of the intellectual shortcoming in terms of Taiwanese discussions concerning China these days, in my opinion, is the lack of attempt to connect cross-strait relations you know, with Sino-American relations or the or broader dynamics in international politics. So these days, it's very difficult, I think, to talk about the relationship relationship between Taiwan and China, just if we only focus on Taiwan, you know, and China, which, by the way, that's a traditional way for us to think about China. But these days, we can not talk about the U.S. when we talk about China. It's also, I think, rather difficult to not talk about Japan or even Europe these days when we talk about China. So I think for Taiwan, in order for us to understand China better, we would actually need to put China in an international context. China is an important global power now. China is not just an Asian power anymore. Mm -hmm. That's true, yeah. So I think that willingness is very important. And I feel like discussion could go on for another hour or so, but I really appreciate George coming into our studio today. I hope we didn't say anything that will get in trouble. (laughs) No, and it's really an honor. And I've actually been very, very nervous. I've been reading Commonwealth Magazine since I was a kid. It's like my first textbooks on economics and geopolitics. Oh, wow. You make me feel old already. (laughs) Okay. So we had a very nice talk with George. Thank you, George, for your time. Thank you. So if you like our show, please leave a review or write us an email. Follow Taiwanology wherever you get your podcasts. If you are interested in reading more in-depth and nonpartisan coverage about Taiwan, please visit Commonwealth English website. The link is in the show notes. Our next episode will be online August 22nd. Taiwanology is produced by Weiru Wang, edited by Ian Huang. I'm your host, Guang Ying Liu. Talk to you soon.